welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast brought to you by the George Washington Milka Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, your host, senior editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. Spring is here and we have exciting things in the works on this podcast, including chats with leaders in the energy and justice fields, podcast takeovers by the fellows, and more. Please do not miss an episode by subscribing at iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. This podcast is supported in part by Beauty Counter, a clean beauty brand on a mission to get safer products into the hands of everyone. You can learn more at beautycounter.com. Today's guest hanging out with me is Elgin Avila, a PhD student studying industrial hygiene at the University of Minnesota, the founder of Equitable Health Solutions, and the director of Environmental and Occupational Health Inequity at the Blue Green Alliance. Avila is also a senior fellow. He was part of our very first cohort of Agents of Change Fellows. He talks about how he got into occupational health, how the gig economy has upended what we think of workers' health and rights, and the importance of merging the labor and environmental movements. Enjoy. All right. I am super happy to be joined by Elgin Avila. Elgin, how are you doing today? I can't complain. How about yourself? I'm doing excellent. Excellent. So Elgin was part of our first cohort. I'm so glad to have him here today. And we have something in common, and that is you are from Detroit. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about growing up there and when and how you became interested in science and environmental health. Yeah, sure thing. So uh, I'll I'll try and make it relatively brief in that regard. But uh, (laughs) <laughs> trying to distill everything down, but uh, growing up in Detroit was good. Um, uh, I uh, didn't actually grow up for most of my life in Detroit. I grew up right outside of it, uh, but I was born and uh, raised up until I was about five in Detroit. And um, uh, after that, I moved to Oak Park. It was really interesting. Um, you know, first uh, the 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 driver was to secure like you know a long term healthy you know, job that could be like a physician. So um, I always thought science was really interesting to me because it was about understanding, you know, who we are as people who, you know, or I guess what also composes the world um, and also kind of starts asking those questions that made you really think deeply and critically about the world. So, um, and about people too. And so that's kind of how I got into it. Um, Just always been a naturally inquisitive person and curious person and um, not really liking, uh, you know, no for an answer and just really simple uh, answers. I always like the complex. I'm wondering if this was the case for you too, but so you're now, we're going to get into this, but you're now looking at environmental and occupational health. I know growing up in that region for me, family members especially, but the the worker and labor rights aspect of Detroit with the automotive industry and thinking about how unions were embedded in my blood. <laughs> and when I was at family gatherings, everybody's talking about union deals and contracts. And um, so I don't know if that was your case at all, but I'm curious if that played at all a role in your interest in kind of workers' rights and occupational health. Absolutely. That's a fantastic question. Actually, it didn't play a role into it until I turned about 18. So I kind of have like a different background. Um, So I actually graduated high school when I was 16. Um, I got around to about 18 was when I really started looking into uh, other fields besides just medicine. 
and uh, started looking into occupational health a little bit more. And I started drawing those parallels as you're, as you're talking about um, in regards to occupational health, safety, et cetera. And uh, that kind of made me think, oh, well, I could just, you know, be an occupational health physician. You know, uh, I thought that made a lot more sense for me since I was still trying to go down that route. But I think I always had it in the back of my mind that, you know, um, being involved in occupational health was somewhere that I wanted to go. Um, it actually kind of relates to the job that, you know, I currently have now as uh, the director of environmental and occupational health and equity at the Blue Green Alliance. And, um, you know, essentially that's a, that's a um, combination of labor and big green organizations, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about later on down the line. But uh, that's, that's funny that you mentioned it. It, it. It's always played like that background role in terms of where I end up progressing. And, um, you know, it makes sense. My mom was also working uh, heavily with UAW. She also worked for Chrysler. So it makes a lot of sense that, you know, that's where we'd end up. Yeah, if you grew up down there, it's like it, the automotive industry touches your life. There, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. But you, you, I mean, you glossed over something really fast that I'm not going to let you gloss over. You graduated <laughs> high school at 16. What, what did you do? Yeah, so that's actually a really uh, uh, like interesting conversation. This was um, one of the things that my mom was actually really supportive of. Um, she knew that I always, um, she knew that I could get easily bored in class. Um, and she knew, you know, kids just inherently when they're bored, they get disrupted. Right. So third grade came around um, and I was just sitting there in class and, uh, you know, I just got really bored. And I just got fed up. And so when my mom picked me up from school one day, she was like, what'd you learn? I told her nothing. And she was just like, what? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I didn't learn anything. And uh, so she was just like, well, that's not normal. You should you should always learn something. She was like, well, you go back to school for a week. See if you learn something. If you don't, we're going to figure this out. And I was like, okay. So I went back to school. Lo and behold, I didn't learn anything. Um, and that's not to say that I had a bad teacher. I had a fantastic teacher. I can't think of her name right now off the top of my head, but I loved her. She was so supportive. Um, and then I went to fourth grade where I had another supportive um, teacher as well. And um, that they had to, they made me do a bunch of tests to make sure that I was, you know, not just lying about, like, I didn't learn this stuff. I already knew it. Um, and, uh, I ended up getting promoted. Uh, so I got promoted to the fourth grade, middle of the school year. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I, I was lucky, I guess, cause, um, my mom was really supportive in that regard of, uh, allowing me to kind of push, uh, push the boundaries when it came to education. Um, so yeah. And I also had a late birthday. So, um, yeah, that's how I Well, good on your mom for recognizing that. I wonder how many kids are bored in class and either act out or just aren't paying attention and chalked up to, to misbehavior instead of advanced. I mean, you were just, you were just advanced. So good on her for recognizing that. So, so fast forward in a little bit. So you went down the road um, to Ypsilanti there for undergraduate work at Eastern Michigan University, and you were introduced to research helping PhD students collect data on childhood obesity risk factors. So tell me a little bit about the research that you helped with there and what'd you take from this early introduction to research and, and what spoke to you about it made you want to pursue it as a career? Yeah, sure thing. So at the time, I was actually doing two inter or two research internships. One was heavily lab based. I really didn't like that. I thought it was far too disconnected from you know the community. And so this project seemed right more like right up my alley. I was always interested in nutrition. Uh, some of that came from you know just me uh, playing sports, uh, wanting to really learn a little bit more about it. And um, one of the things that I I didn't expect to you know take place from this project was just my understanding of uh, the process of research. 
Um, I, I thought just maybe, maybe I could, you know, possibly pursue a PhD, but, um, you know, I was still thinking like, ah, maybe medicine, but this was really the opportunity that I found to really fall in love with research um, and to really see the, the, um, the impact that it could possibly have. So uh, with this project, we're going to Detroit homes. Uh, we're talking to families. We're figuring out, you know, what are their typical exercise routines? Um, how does weather play a role into it? These multitude of factors uh, really changing the way that people not only perceive their own health, um, but also the way in which they interact with their built environment. So that really kind of groomed me into this, this uh, space of public health. Um, although this wasn't necessarily a public health project, it had those elements of it. Um, looking at you know health from a population standpoint, looking at the most vulnerable populations, that really gave me a great introduction into public health. And um, it's, it's really shaped uh, who I am now as a researcher and as a practitioner. Excellent. Excellent. And before we get to where you're at now and how you've kind of taken that experience there, tell me about a moment or event that shaped your identity. A moment or event that shaped my identity. That's really tough. There's like so many in, in life, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a big one. It's a big, broad question that, that that sometimes people really like to answer. And sometimes I have to edit these because they take 40 seconds of silence to think about it. So yeah, anything, you know, personal or professionally, really just something that stands out that helped that help shape you. Yeah, sure thing. I think I would say um, it would be me actually graduating from the master's program. I don't think um, I, I think a lot of people could understand why this could you know, be valuable, but I don't think people understood what it necessarily meant to me as a person. Um, first off, in my family, like in my immediate family, I was the yeah, I was the first person to get a degree and I'm the I'm the youngest. Um, and that's not to say that my, my siblings aren't capable, but that, that just it, it pushed me over this mental barrier that I really had. Um, in terms of, you know, collecting degrees or, you know, uh, reaching my achievements, right? So the first one was really helpful, but the graduation from George Washington University, that really got me because, um, you know, all of us, we walk out with debt. But the fact of the matter is, is I, Elgin Avila, a Black kid from Detroit, was able to not only go to George Washington University, but actually graduate and, like, actually get that master's degree from that. That was huge. That's huge. I don't know too many people from Detroit, let alone people who live in Detroit or who are even around my age who have a master's degree and are able to actually come from the exact same environment that I was. And uh, there's obviously I, I just want to be some type of um, catalyst for other folks, but also like that resource uh, to kind of push other folks along um, and experience, you know, reaching their dreams to some degree. Um, and to continuously rebuild and recreate new goals, um, you know, once they meet those goals. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, and so you're doing that. So you haven't, uh, you didn't stop at the masters and that's a, that's an excellent moment. I, you know, I can, uh, I can imagine, was your family there? Were they able to, to, to be there for you? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Dr. Anz Irfan, my, my brother, he's, he was able to be there as well. He also graduated in the same class as me. So it meant a lot. That's that's great. And uh, fun fact that Anz was the very first guest I had on this podcast, and we fumbled our way through uh, figuring this out together. So yeah, a little, little callback there. So now you are focusing on disparities in environmental and occupational health. And, and, and like I said, you're, you're continuing to work on this research. And pers- are you pursuing a PhD, right? Yes, I am. Yep. Right. 
So tell, tell us just kind of broad strokes, you know, 10,000 10, foot view. Tell us a bit about occupational health disparities. What are some of these vulnerable jobs that you're looking at? And walk us through some of the health disparities in these fields. Sure thing. Yeah. So um, occupational health is a really interesting place. Um, so you get to you get to experience a really like a, a wide gamut of issues when it comes to, you know, the way or what people are being exposed to on a daily basis. So let's look at this, for example, um, occupational health, heat stress right now. That's one of the main things that we're talking about at this moment um, because uh, federal OSHA issued an advance notice, um, you know, I think it was about two, maybe three months ago. So um, heat stress is also a climate change issue. So we get to really look at those, those um, complex, but also um, connected issues. Um, and so who are most likely the people who are going to be affected by this? Um, most of the time people think outdoor workers, but in reality, indoor workers are also um, at risk for this exposure. So um, I think about the folks, not only who are farm workers, I, I think about the, the pesticide appliers, but I also think about those manufacturer workers who are working inside and are also being exposed to extreme heat indexes. Um, and typically those are lower wage workers um, sometimes they're union workers, but think about those folks who work at those bottling plants. Think about those folks who work in Detroit, who are a part of unions sometimes, but sometimes they're also not a part of those unions or those union relationships are not nearly as strong as some of our other counterparts. So they really lose out on a lot of opportunities in which they can advocate for themselves, uh, protect themselves a lot more effectively. And uh, that, that, really, um, that really makes it really difficult for folks to want to engage. So then we also think about um, folks who um, are undocumented. We also think about those folks and how their relationship with, um, with uh, being in a workplace, especially for somewhere that is a non-union workplace, how their, uh, their fear, their very reasonable fear of retaliation from an employer can really impact them as well. Um, so there's, there's a lot of vulnerable, or there are a lot of vulnerable populations, I should say, in the workforce. Um, and uh, it's, it's kind of my job to kind of expose that. That's how I kind of see it. Yeah, that's excellent. And I think I, I would be curious to hear your thoughts about this, that the last two years in my mind, this has become a little more crystal for folks with COVID because we had meat plants that were being forced to stay open. Um, and that was kind of obvious. I mean, you're talking about um, a, a largely immigrant workforce that has very few labor rights. So I think more people kind of knew about that. But now I'm thinking too about cashiers and and these essential jobs. Um, I shouldn't have used air quotes. They are essential jobs. And while the rest of us that work from home were able to kind of comfortably get through the pandemic uh, work-wise, maybe not comfortably otherwise, but folks were forced to go in. So I'm wondering if you think these issues are kind of more on the radar and if you're seeing if that's a good thing, is, is, are we seeing some positive movement because now people are forced to reckon with this with COVID? Yeah, um, I always think anytime you shine a light on an injustice, you, you're you're doing something positive. Um, the issue is, is how do we make sure that that spotlight stays on the issue and it doesn't become something that falls at the wayside, right? Um, by that, I mean, um, you know, how do we keep the momentum going around protecting these folks, um, especially those who are considered essential workers, right? Oftentimes, they are the folks who um, are forgotten, um, especially if they're in rural locations. Uh, oftentimes, like, you know, media, they focus on the, the big city um, exposures, they focus on the big city injuries, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, so I, I personally think it's a great thing that we're focusing on the everyday worker. Um, for example, uh, essential workers, we're thinking about cashiers, we're thinking about minimum wage workers. A lot of times people still are associating younger workers, such as people myself or people who are in high school, college, et cetera, with essential working positions, such as being a cashier, such as being a barista, such as being a um, uh, cafeteria worker, such as et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So how do we make sure that we protect those folks? And I think this is their time uh, to continue raising the issues that are present within their workforce and within their work environments. So that way we can, we can hopefully, you know, make change. I'm glad you brought up the rural aspect. I live in a very rural area and um, it, it becomes a more complex issue because there's there, now there's less health resources for folks who are forced to go to work. There's less public transportation. Um, it, there's this whole, there's this whole new complexity of factors um, so I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think we often are a little, this is my biased view, but I think we're a little urban, urban centric with these issues. Yeah. But I'm I'm really curious about your focus currently on the gig economy. Mm-hmm. And I, I am, I am not entirely sure what this term means. I immediately think of Uber driver. That's all I can think. So if you could kind of define what we mean by the gig economy and then walk us through the ways these emerging workforces kind of face unique occupational hazards and disparities. Hey, I would be remiss if I did not mention at this very time, no one fully understands who or what comprises the gig economy. So you are <laughs> not alone. <laughs> you are absolutely not alone on that one. Uh, so for the purposes of my dissertation, which is going to be on gig workers, um, I kind of narrowed it down to electronically mediated workers. Um, for this, but let's keep it broad so folks understand really what or who really comprises gig workers. So essentially the gig economy is anything, or I like to describe it as anything that really consists of those gig type jobs or those independent contractor type jobs um, that is alternative or non-traditional in terms of a work arrangement. So let's break that down a little bit. So when I say non-traditional of a work arrangement, I mean things that deviate from the nine to five or the eight hour a day, 40 hour work week. I mean, different types of uh, work arrangements than that. So let's say someone who has to work 12 hours one day, they had three days off and then they have to go back for 12 hours and it's kind of geared towards their at will or their um, task oriented job or work schedule. So I like to think of that as, okay, you're, you're really being hired for a job or a task, not necessarily to work for a company or for an organization long-term, and your pay is based off of that task. It's not going to be based off of how many hours you did it. It's going to be based off of the task. Um, so that consists of anyone that literally can be uh, shoveling snow, but who isn't necessarily um, a uh, qualified or an employee for a company that could be for could be rideshare drivers it could be delivery share drivers it could be folks who are on etsy um and they're uh, they're creating items for folks um really it comprises of people or it comprises of jobs that are considered gigs think about a gig it typically only lasts for about a day um sometimes it can be lengthened but yeah it, there's really no very 
clear crystal definition of it. So my apologies, I couldn't give you a beautifully concise one. <laughs> Actually, at the end, you did. I, I am embarrassed to admit, I never thought about the word gig mm. as that's the reason it's called the gig economy. <laughs> I was thinking like gig, like a gigabyte or some kind of digital term, but that that makes a lot more sense. And so, so when we think about these folks, I'm a, my assumption is that that some of the worry is they don't have they're they're not subject to some of the labor laws because they're not going through traditional employers or something. Is that is that the risk? Is that what you're looking at? That's part of the risk, right? So there's always there's always a well it depends answer that we can always give. But really, um, when it comes to this, it is about um, that that potential risk or those lack of protections that are associated with those jobs. So think about, you know, we can make this as simple as think about that person who's um, working gigs. They work for a band. That's kind of the typical gig thing that we're thinking of. That person is getting paid per show. They're not getting paid per, you know, et cetera. So they have to account not only for their own taxes, they have to account for their own equipment. They have to account for their own resources that they use. And so as a result, they have to think about, okay, I need to account for 20% roughly uh, for my taxes, I need to account for, you know, uh, this person's uh, health care or shoot, if I can't afford that health care, you know, how what kind of arrangement do we have in place for this other person who's also working with me on this gig? So there you're absolutely right. It, it really comes down to whether or not there are protections around those gig workers. And right now we're seeing that there really aren't protections for gig workers and a lot of companies um, who employ gig workers are really trying to find ways in which they don't have to uh, bring on that additional liability. Um, they want to, in some cases, continue to misclassify workers to avoid that extra expense. And that was my next question that I think you just answered. So, so you're not seeing any kind of policy catching up to the fact, because this is exploding. I mean, during... I mentioned COVID earlier. I know at the you know grocery stores, everybody's having shopping done for them. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, it started with Uber and now it's kind of spider webbing into all aspects of our lives. So basically the policy is not keeping up. Exactly. You're absolutely right in that regard. And that's kind of um, part of what I wanted to do in my dissertation was just to kind of show, okay, there is this peer reviewed, scientifically approached method that was used in order to, um, you know, explore and in some cases analyze the data that we collected for these gig workers, right? So I wanted to kind of use this as more of an advocacy tool um, for folks uh, who engage in this gig work space. And um, you're absolutely right. The policy is not keeping up with it. Uh, we're having a lot of issues in regards to worker misclassification. Think about that California um, assembly bill. Uh, it was back two, three years ago, in which um, Uber spent so much money. They they devoted, I think it was tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars into a campaign in order to beat that assembly bill and um, essentially eliminate this or uh, prevent gig workers from actually being qualified as uh, employees uh, because they uh, lose a lot of um autonomy with their job. So for example, uh, they, they lose uh, autonomy when it comes to um, uh, the hours that they, um, or I'm sorry, the wage per hour that they have. 
Um, so say, for example, they, they can't uh, negotiate with a, with a customer whether or not they should be charged a little bit more. They have to rely on those tips and just hope that a person really just, you know, gives them a fair wage. Um, so, yeah, policy is absolutely not keeping up with it. And I have to imagine in this field and others, we often think about, you mentioned earlier, pesticide exposure. So when I think of occupational health, you think of very specific hazards yeah. to your health. Um, I worked in a factory and, and there was multiple guys missing digits, you mm. know, just cutting steel right. and, and missing digits. So there's just kind of the the regular physical um, impacts. But can you speak to some of the me- mental health aspects of occupational health? I don't know if your research has gotten into Absolutely. this or if you've digging into the, dug into the re- um, the literature, but what what is going on on that front? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought this up. So um, one, I, I really want to touch on this uh, concept uh, from NIOSH called the total worker health approach. Um, it's been something that a lot of folks have already you know known. A lot of occupational health specialists have, have been advocating for but especially when it comes to folks who are, um, you know, involved in the EJ climate change space, they already knew this. They just didn't have a formalized title for it. But um, NIOSH's total worker health approach is essentially looking at a worker holistically and thinking about, you know, what sorts of um, additional exposures or non-traditional exposures um, can impact the health, uh, can impact the health, excuse me, of a worker. So, for example, like you're, you're bringing up mental health. So I'm thinking about what sorts of psychosocial exposures is a worker exposed to at work? So let's keep thinking about gig workers in this case, uh, specifically rideshare drivers and delivery share drivers. Think about that driver or that worker who was exposed to workplace violence during the job. So that's an exposure, that's a psychosocial exposure that's a physical exposure in some in some ways, but that has altered the perception of that person and the perception of whether or not their job is safe. Likely that that's probably what has been altered in that case, right? So with gig workers, since this space is so new and is going to continue evolving, um, uh, which I really want to harp on, um, it, this issue is going to continue to persist. Uh, we're going to continue to have more worker misclassification unless we focus on the policy of it. But um, in this regard, we're thinking about that worker violence that that person is experiencing. How does that impact their health? How does that um, how does this uh, experience impact their perception of uh, whether or not their job is safe, whether or not their uh, support staff is going to actually assist them um, through this process? And if they don't get that assistance, um, how did that impact their mental health and their perception of safety? So that's kind of the first question that I have to answer through this investigation. The next steps will be able to look a little bit more directly at the mental health implications of this kind of gig work, especially as it continues to evolve and as that work continues to become a little bit more dangerous. Um, and the reason we're thinking is going to become more dangerous is because automation and other economic and environmental factors are going to continue to keep evolving and going to continue to um, force more gig kind of oriented jobs moving forward. Sorry, that was a long way to answer. (laughs) No, not at all. I'm wondering outside of the gig economy, if you've uh, noticed any progress on this in kind of more traditional jobs. I, I know just... I was talking to my sister last night and she works for a uh, engineering firm in Detroit mm-hmm. and they have now switched to two day 
um, two day work weeks at the office, three days at home. And on the face, maybe that's not a mental health uh, <laughs> positive, but in my mind, my, my sister's a mother, you know, and she, right. this is good for her mental health. She's able to work from home and, and not have the commute down I-75. Absolutely. But um, so, so I'm wondering if you're seeing a renewed focus on mental health in some of the traditional workforce, if you're seeing any, any bright spots there. Mm. From a research standpoint or just from practice? Either one. Okay. Just as somebody who's kind of engaged in this field, if you're if you're noticing uh, a change in that direction, I know as an environmental journalist and editor, mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot more of the connection between mental health and the environment, mental mm-hmm. health and climate anxiety. Uh, just in sports, I mean, you are. I know we're both sports fans. Yes, we are. The, the amount of uh, attention on mental health now in sports. This wasn't like this growing up when you were a football player, Ooh. basketball player, you didn't talk about mental health. So I'm wondering, we're seeing it in other aspects of society. Are you seeing kind of traditional employers um, pay more attention to this? I think so, but only because the market demands it. Only because the potential employees and the current employees are truly demanding it. Um, and that that might not be necessarily directly a demand, but those could be indirect demands. For example, um, when the situation, or I, I can't call it a situation, I'm sorry. Um, when the murder of George Floyd happened, when I was living in Minnesota, um, during the time, a lot of companies and a lot of organizations, especially nonprofit organizations sat back and thought, okay, I need to figure out how we as an organization are going to respond to this because it's clearly not right. So how do we respond to this? What sorts of initiatives, what sorts of programs? are we going to have to do to not only one respond to this uh, for the public's sake, but also for the sake of our employees and our potential employees. So I think companies and organizations are forced to think about this right now. And that's a market demand. Um, but I, I, I can't speak necessarily to the research. Um, I think a lot of the research right now is focused on COVID um, and its mental health impacts, which is fantastic work and is you know, where it should be. But I, I just don't think a lot of folks right now are focusing um, in, in other respects uh, on right. that kind of research. So this leads me nicely into, so in addition to your research, you're, as you mentioned, you're the Director of Occupational and Environmental Health and Equity at the Blue-Green Alliance, which is focused on uniting labor union and environmental organizations to kind of jointly tackle environmental challenges. So thinking about kind of merging these two movements. So tell me about the Alliance's work, what you're doing there, and why it's important to merge these two movements of labor and the environment, which have kind of operated in silos for too long. Exactly. And um, I, I think that's the reason why I was I was kind of drawn towards it. Um, one, I had a colleague who spoke highly of the organization and also did some work with them. Uh, but also, I, I really liked that, that idea of really focusing on communication when it comes to solidifying and, and um, not necessarily centralizing, but kind of uh, creating this cohesive message between, you know, labor groups and those big environmental organizations. So these labor groups that we particularly work with, um, it's over a million members that essentially these are partners. Um, uh, they, I, I won't say they oversee, but they represent. So, I really liked that impact. I, I really liked it because um, BGA is um, not only a national organization, but also a state organization. So it really allows us to um, even engage with environmental justice organizations, which is what I'm kind of spearheading. And I'm trying to um, 
kind of formalize that process a little bit more and really uh, creating this opportunity in which we as an organization, um, you know, who are engaging with our partners on a regular basis, such as the United Steelworkers. I want us as an organization, as well as the organization themselves and our partners, want us to engage and uh, become a lot more efficient with the work that we do, um, with the equity work that we're trying to build internally and the work that we're doing externally. How do we inject that equity and justice into it? So that way, one, we're better EJ allies, two, we represent or we um, represent our workers a little bit more and also their families a little bit more effectively um, because that's often been an issue uh, that we've seen. Uh, to get to your question a little bit more, um, we really like seeing the dichotomy and the, the conversation that happens between the labor organizations and the uh, big green organizations. Um, sometimes it's really like butting heads, but that's solely because of who we're trying to represent and how we're trying to get there. We want to make sure that we're doing it as efficiently as possible, but also in a collective um, cohesive and holistic kind of approach moving forward. So I really enjoy the work that we do there. And I'm really fortunate that I was able to, to um, really be able to focus on the equity and, and justice piece of it uh, moving forward. I, you know, when I was prepping for this interview, I wasn't totally aware of Blue Green and I, and I looked them up and it got me excited because this yeah. nexus has always fascinated me again going back to to where we're from and and kind of the labor labor movement there the labor rights there and then my career as an environmental journalist i found the 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 folks where i live now i can almost always find common ground when we talk about workers rights Mm -hmm. and labor rights Mm -hmm. and even if we disagree wildly politically we can agree on those things. And so I, I'm really fascinated by this and I'm excited to see where it gets going. And I think a lot of these merging of movements has happened in the last few years. I'm thinking of Black Lives Matter focusing, uh, you know, bringing financial stability and economics yes. into the equation and not just and climate justice, kind of bringing all the groups under one tent. Yes. So um, very cool work. I'm excited to see what, what comes of this. I appreciate that. And I, I certainly agree with you. I think the combining of these movements, it kind of speaks to the connectedness again, in which we all or our missions are all connected. Like, um, again, when it comes to environmental justice, and especially when it comes to, you know, indigenous folks, for example, they've already understood this concept far more than us. There has never been any propaganda that has blinded them to this element of connectedness that we all exhibit, especially in regards to the environment and especially in regards to people. Right. And for so long that what, what's what's torn us down in this in these spaces is the the corporate the corporate folks say they are coming for your jobs. The enviros are coming for your jobs. Yeah. And the environmental folks have been saying, hey, coal work, coal work is bad. Coal is bad. Mm-hmm. And like you said, we're all we all want the same thing. We want healthy families. We want good jobs. We want clean air and water to drink. And if we all get in the same room and start from that standpoint, even if there is a little bit of butting heads, like you said, I think uh, I think we can find some common ground. And these kind of these kind of things give me optimism. So I'm really happy to hear that. Exactly. Um, I only have a couple more questions, but I did want to ask you. So you are you are a sports fan, and I, <laughs> much to the chagrin of my wife, I am constantly watching sports. Uh, just I just love sports. So tell what did you what did you play growing up and who do you are you still a are you a Detroit sports fan? What teams are you following? That is a totally fair question. Um 
I am definitely still a sports fan. I, by default, have to be a Detroit fan. Detroit Lions, Pistons, et cetera, fan. Um, and that's okay. I, I, the reason why I say by default is solely because I I have friends now who are playing in the league, who have played for someone else, and it, it just feels really strange liking <laughs> <laughs> liking one very specific team. But I will say this, though. I, I definitely still am a Detroit fan. I always want our city to do well. And um, I always think about the implications of when we do well, what does that grant us? I say, hopefully, in the future, that Detroit Lions fans will, <laughs> will be able to experience some wins, though. Um, but I, I played basketball, football. Um, I did the field events um, when I was in high school as well. I swam, which was actually my best uh, sport. Uh, I had a terrible knee growing up. So, I, I like, swimming, I just fell in love with it. I, I love being able to split the water and actually feel me getting faster and that that experience that that was fantastic and it's a it's a um it's an event or it's an experience that you can only rely on yourself and i think that taught me a lot in terms of uh being really self-determined um a self-starter um and so on and so forth but i love sports yeah, that's great. You know, swimming and uh, I cycle now too. I was nice. a runner. I played I played football growing up and uh, I boxed uh, in my late teens, uh, early 20s um, nice. and, and learned a lot there. Learned that I shouldn't do it because I use my brain <laughs> uh, for a living. But I love but, boxing. Um, I've, oh, yeah. It's, there's, there's such a science to it. Yeah. There, there really is a science to it. And um, yeah. Uh, I, but, but those cycling and, uh, and swimming, those low impact sports that you can do into older age, I'm oh. finding as I near 40 are really good ones to, to stick with because yeah. you can do those <laughs> as you get older. Absolutely. You don't, you, don't, you don't have to leave those behind. So are the, uh, last question on this, just cause I'm curious, mm-hmm. do you think the lions are going to be able to turn it around in the next couple of years? Hey, I've learned to never doubt an underdog. I've learned to never doubt Detroit folks. I've never wanted to doubt them either. So <laughs> I think there's always a possibility, right? Um, I think though, we'll, it totally depends. If we start seeing some changes in front office and we start seeing a change of culture, I think those are really good indications as to whether or not we're turning something around here. But they have pieces. And, you know, those Lions folks, I mean, folks on that team, Let's be honest, they they do not like losing. There's a reason why they still ended up picking up a couple of wins this year. Um, and uh, I I think that they made a smart move getting the offensive tackle this year. I mean, uh, yeah, this year. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> but um, awesome. yeah, it's definitely smart smart decision. I hope they're going in the right direction. Yes. Well, I love the optimism. My, my dad teases me because he has told me for years, I've been following them, son, for 50 years and they're never going to be good. So it would be nice to, <laughs> nice to prove my dad wrong one of these days. Speaking of optimism and I'll get us back on track here to finish up. Tell me, I, I like asking folks what they're optimistic about in the research field they're looking at. And you've given us a little bit today, especially with the blue green work, but I wonder if there's anything you'd like to add. What are you optimistic about right now when it comes to workers' health and workers' rights? I think I'm really interested in regards to the shift of market demand. I'm really excited about that. When you put the control or you put the influence back into the hands of the people, I'm always excited about that because that means that people are thinking critically sometimes. <laughs> but most of the time, people are thinking critically once they start getting power back into their hands. And um, 
I mean, at the end of the day, if if people collectively make a bad decision, I'm okay with that. But um, I, I really feel like um, this this trend we're seeing right now is going in the right direction. And by that, I mean, specifically, I think people are becoming smarter. Um, I think our workforce, especially as Gen Z kind of starts uh, starts working, I think they're going to be they're going to blow millennials out the water. They have so much access to information. They do not take no for an answer. If they feel it is reasonable, they do. They definitely do not. My niece is 19 years old and she constantly reminds me of that. And I absolutely love it. I think this new workforce will either push us into the right direction of some of our EU partners who are you know, pushing for more thoughtful, um, just human rights geared you know, benefits for workers. Um, I think Gen Z can do that. I, I certainly think millennials can do it as well, but um, I'm really excited to see this market continuously pushing uh, folks. I think it will eventually get us over the hump and we'll really start protecting workers um, you know, uh, in, in both the private and public space. And uh, hopefully that eventually means that OSHA will be able to start putting forth some good work and uh, you know, start cutting down on those timelines that they have. That's my only criticism that I'll, I'll share about OSHA right now. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that is an optimistic view. The, the youth the youth will lead us forward on climate and workers' health and rights. And Always we are uh, we're, we are so grateful for them. So, Elgin, this has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed catching up with you. I Likewise. really wish I saw saw the you folks more. But and, uh, the last question is, what is the last book that you read for fun? That's a fantastic question. I'm actually reading one right now for fun. Uh, the Pedagogy of the Oppressed uh, from Paolo. Oh my goodness, I always mess his last name up. Fredere? It's Portuguese, and my dad is Dominican, so sometimes I want to mix the two. But I'm reading that for fun. Um, I actually really like it. I always love books that um, evoke critical thought, and um, just really hearing his perspective in regards to oppression is really connecting a lot of dots for me. And I get excited whenever I connect dots because that means that I can connect dots to other topics and uh, I can see parallels. So I, I really love that. Excellent. I always laugh at the books that all these agents of change folks read for quote fun. They always <laughs> seem to, there's a heaviness to them that uh, sound very interesting <laughs> as I look at my stack of, you know, comic books uh -huh. and graphic novels that I feel like uh, I feel like I'm failing. Well, Elgin, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And go Lions. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic catching up with you as well. Uh, I wish we could definitely do it more. Maybe we can in the future. But uh, yeah, it's always good connecting with you. You're fantastic people. And so are ages of change. That's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Elgin. How about that? A couple of Detroit sports fans cutting it up. A little fun, fun talk about the Lions. I like that. If you enjoy this podcast, be a part of it and help us out. Visit agentsofchangeinej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and follow this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, where you can listen to all past episodes. This Agents of Change podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshida Ornelas-Fanhorn, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Hannah Seo. Our theme music is Now Sun by Poddington Bear. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeinej.org. 
Thanks for joining me. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join us next time for a special edition podcast where senior fellows Tatiana Tots height and Anjali Hall discuss black histories and visions of urban planning. It's a fascinating discussion. Have a great week, folks.